Last week we began a series that we've entitled Strangers in a Strange Land, looking uh, verse by verse at the uh, letter of 1 Peter. And last week we spent our time together uh, as a way of introduction, kind of setting the table for our study uh, together. And today we turn our attention to what is called the opening salutation. Uh, and it's far more, uh, what Peter shares in these verses is far more than a, hi, h- how are you? Uh, what these verses are going to be is hopefully an anchor for your soul. No doubt it was for the original readers, and I pray that today it would be as well. And so we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2, and I'm going to be looking at this passage under the heading, Loathed by the world, but loved by God. Loathed by the world, but loved by God. I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's Word. Uh, for this uh, series in First Peter, I'm going to be using the English Standard Version. And, uh, and uh, so if you've been following me with the NIV, uh, you'll still be able to follow. It'll be just a little bit different, uh, but follow along as I read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Father God, we come before you again, and Lord, we pray because we are utterly dependent on your mercy. Father, we need that grace and peace to be multiplied to us. We need it in all abundance. And I, Lord, I pray that you would shower us with your love and your grace and peace this morning. Father, that that would not just be for us as an assembly here in Sugar Grove, but I pray that for the two other campuses of Village Bible Church, Lord, the Aurora campus, I pray that you uh, will speak through Travis as he proclaims the message there. I pray for Dave Heidel out at the Indian Creek campus as he opens the same text before them this morning. Father, that they would uh, um, be confronted by the great truth of your love for them this morning. Father, in a broader sense, I pray for the churches in our area. Father, I lift up the congregations of Christ Community Church. I lift up uh, the Orchard Community Church. Father, uh, the United Methodist Church here in Sugar Grove, Calvary Church, Lord. These churches, Lord, that may do things differently than we do, that may have different focuses, Lord, uh, different aspects of of ministry that they may do um, in a way that, that we don't, Father. But I pray that you would strengthen each of those congregations, Lord, as they open your word, Father, that they would hear the voice of God. Father, speak through the men that are teaching and proclaiming that truth today. Father, I pray that their churches would grow. Father, I pray that they would see a great number of converts come into their midst. Lord, we know that they are not our competition, but Lord, they are churches that we partner with in the pursuit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would speak through them boldly the truth of your scriptures and that lives would be changed and that, Lord, because of our efforts together, that you'd bring great revival to this land. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts now to what you have to say to us and that you would speak to us of your love. Even though we may be hated by this world, Lord, affirm upon us the love that you've had since the beginning of time. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. You may be seated. While it is true many times that uh, we talk here as a church, I will affirm over and over again that we are united and we are one in Christ. But I want to begin my message this morning by telling you that you're very different than the people that are sitting around you. That that may be very obvious to you, 
Uh, but if you were to spend any amount of time with the person uh, sitting next to you who isn't your spouse or a part of your family, you would recognize a couple things about the differences that you have. First of all, you look different. And I'll leave that whether you think you're better looking than the person next to you. I'll let you fight amongst yourselves for that award. But you have different tastes in food, the books that you read, uh, the shows that you watch. Those tastes are going to be different on those things. We all come from varied backgrounds. Some of us grew up in Christian homes while others of us did not. Some of us uh, have certain cultures and customs that we bring from our family while they are different for others. As we would talk about the future amongst each other, we would learn that our futures and our pursuits and plans for the future are incredibly different. We know the jobs that we have, the investment of our time from Monday through Friday is different. Even how we spend our free time, the hobbies that we have, no doubt would be different. We as a people, while we are one in Christ, would differ on, a, on thoughts of myriads of issues, things like politics, and uh, we would hold to different convictions about child-rearing and even education. Our heights and our weights are different, and so is the color of our skin. There's far more different about who we are than what makes us common. But can I tell you, while as different as we are in the different backgrounds we have and the different things that we involve ourselves in may be different, one thing is incredibly common amongst us, and that is we all know what it feels like to be unloved and to be hurt by the world around us. Joseph Parker, a uh, teacher to a new generation of preachers of yesteryear, told his pupils uh, the following maxim. He says, be preachers to the hurting. Preach to them often, because you will never lack a congregation. There is always a hurting soul in every pew. You see, suffering and hurting are universal. No matter your status or your age, each of us have felt the sting that comes when we experience the loathing of our very existence by a hostile world. We learned this early on when the kids are being picked on the playground and we are always the last one picked. The feeling that comes, the sting that comes of being the one who is unwanted on either of the teams. We feel this in, as in our teenage years when we start having feelings about that a certain someone only to find out as we muster up enough courage to ask that certain someone out for a cup of coffee or, or to a dance, only to be turned down. And even sometimes the word shared, I would never go out with you. We know the sting that comes from that. How about the pain that when we need it the most, we lack a friend? Or the torment that comes when an enemy maligns us in our reputation? Or when we are tormented by others as a result of our past and its mistakes. And we are reminded over and over again how much we failed in the past and how worthless we are because of those failures. How about in the job world when we're overlooked for a promotion because we have stood for what is right. Maybe you've been abused in the past. Maybe by someone you trusted or maybe someone you didn't even know. Or maybe you've been neglected by a spouse and you're being ridiculed by your family for your faith. No matter what it is, we all know what it's like. We all know that the world isn't a very friendly place many times to people who love Jesus. And yet while we may express our anguish and our pain in different ways, each of us know how bad life can hurt and how quickly our dreams 
can fade. The heartache and the pain, the disease and disaster that life brings upon us, the trials and sufferings. And yet with all that being said, within that context that was true in the first century, as it is today, we have a word before us from our God in heaven, and it is this, I love you. No matter how broken, no matter how little you feel you are in this universe, no matter how lost you may feel at times, the God of the universe through the words of Peter says clearly, I love you and I have a very special plan for your life. These were scattered strangers that Peter is writing to. And they were going through times of suffering and pain. In fact, throughout this book, we will see 15 times the subject of suffering come up. And Peter will use eight different words to explain how we ought to live in light of that suffering. Now, some of them were suffering just as we are today. Christians suffering in the first century because they were living godly lives and doing what was good and right. Others were suffering for standing up for the name of Christ and being mocked by unbelievers for doing so. And what Peter is going to announce to us this morning is he begins his letter by encouraging them to be good witnesses and godly examples to a lost world around them. No matter how hostile the world is, no matter how much the world is against them, he wants them to shine like stars for Christ. But he says, it's not gonna be easy. And so he begins this letter of learning how to suffer well for Christ, learning how to be an alien and stranger in this world, to be Christ to a world that is hostile against anything of faith, Peter starts with words of encouragement by reminding us of three truths this morning. I want you to get your outlines out and write this down. The first way he encourages us is he reminds us about our home. He reminds us about our home. Now, most scholars believe that the original recipients of this letter were two types of people. They were Jewish followers of God who had come to know Christ and who had found themselves moved out of the land of Palestine into the far-flung places of Asia Minor. Now, we don't know exactly what brought them there, but we know that during that time in Jerusalem that there was a level of persecution going on. It would not be the persecution that was about to come in the decade that they were living in, but it was persecution nonetheless. And so we have God-fearing and now Christ-fearing Jews who are in far-flung places of the world. But then we also have amidst this, and we see it throughout the text, that there are Gentiles in their midst. Gentiles who had come to know Christ, probably through those God-fearing Jews, who now had placed their hope and trust in Christ, and now were leaving the life of ignorance and the life of debauchery that they lived, and now were following Jesus Christ. Now we learn a couple things about them. The scripture tells us that they are scattered. They are scattered. Notice in the text it says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, they have been scattered abroad. Now this is true and was true in the Old Testament times as well. There were times where the people of God were scattered into uh, the neighboring areas of the land of Palestine. And God used it as a way of scattering amidst uh, punishment. He used it as opportunities for evangelism. But these people were now scattered abroad, Asia Minor, 
and they were scattered, but they weren't alone. No, it says that they were elect exiles. But I want you to know that this letter came to churches, not to individuals. It wasn't as if we went to our mailboxes as a Christian in these areas and opened our, our mailbox door and saw a letter to Tim and Amanda from Peter. No, these were written to a group of assemblies, to churches that were in these provinces. You say, well, Tim, there's nowhere in there that it says that there were churches. Well, yes, there is. Turn for a moment to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. We see that Peter is writing to churches, and how do we know that? Because notice what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. Well, to have elders, you have to have a church. To have a church, you have to have elders. And he writes among you to a group of people, and he says, okay, I've talked to everybody in general. Now let me talk to the elders among you. And so we have, within these five different provinces, we have elders who are leading churches, and notice what he says. He says, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And so he says to the elders, I want you to do a good job of shepherding. I want you to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but examples to the greater flock. And so Peter is writing, and he in chapter 5 says, hey, amidst your churches, elders do a good job of eldering and minister to those who are under your care. And so we have a scattered group of Christians who are meeting in assemblies in churches together under the oversight of the church. And so the letter would come, and one of the elders would get up, and he would read the letter, and they would expound on the letter and teach from the letter exactly what we're doing today. Now, there's a couple things that we need to know about these people and their home. First of all, we need to look at them from a geographical standpoint, or we need to see this home geographically. I want you to notice there's a, a map that I want to put up, and we see the areas that are mentioned by Peter, Bithynia, and Pontus, Asia, Galatia, and Cappadocia. To give you an idea, of course, you know, there's the modern-day Black Sea, and this is modern-day Turkey, where all of those places are. Syria is just to the south of it, and of course, that is uh, the Syria where all of the conflict is taking place. Over here, where you see Macedonia and, and the Aegean Sea and the Adriatic Sea, in between there, that peninsula, of course, is the peninsula known as Greece, modern-day Greece. If you go across to the left, to your left of uh, the Adriatic Sea, you see the heel to the boot of Italy. And so within that, just keeping an eye on that, let me tell you a little bit about where these people were living. We first are told that these are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius. Pontius was located on the Black Sea, as you can see. It was a place with a long history. It was ruled by a dynasty of rulers. These prov this province alone was a fierce opponent of the Roman Empire. For over 200 years, the people of Pontius fought the Romans, over and over again. It would finally be taken over by Rome after a fierce battle about 60 years before the birth of Christ. Now we know that there were pilgrims, Acts chapter 2 tells us, from Pontius who, who did a pilgrimage all the way down through Syria into Palestine, into Jerusalem, and that they were a part of the crowd on the day of Pentecost that would hear Peter 
preach the message. And so how did the church start? On the day of Pentecost, some people from Pontius heard the gospel, heard Peter, Peter preach in their language, and they took that message of the gospel back to their hometown, and they proclaimed it to others. Another thing that we learn about is uh, the man uh, in the Bible named Aquila, his wife Priscilla. They were teachers of, of God's word and wonderful disciples. Aquila was from the land of Pontius, and so he was a well-known individual, no doubt, within that church. Then we have the area of Galatia. Galatia was a province in Central Asia Minor. It's named after the Gaelic tribe that helped Nicodemus, uh, Nicomedes, I'm sorry, I keep thinking Nicodemus. Nicomedes, the king of Bithynia. So we got Nicomedes, he's the king of Bithynia, and Galatia was a group of tribes that helped Bithynia conquer the Greeks and to send the Greeks out of their land. Now, Paul would go to Galatia, and he would do so on his two, uh, first two missionary journeys. As a result of that, in Galatia, a church would be established. And as a result of that, Paul would write a letter to that church, and the letter's name was Philippians. You're absolutely wrong. It's the book of Galatians, and that's where the people of Galatia are from. Then we have Cappadocia, which is off to your right there. And Cappadocia was a mountainous area in the eastern part of Asia Minor. Tiberius would make it a Roman province in AD 17. General Vespian would make it a great bastion of Roman life during his time of conquest of the neighboring land, which you can't see right now, but of Armenia. Like Pontius, Cappadocia had people representing them on the day of Pentecost to hear the message of Peter and likewise take the gospel back to the land of Cappadocia. How about Asia? Asia was the land there on the Aegean Sea, which was given as gifts by Alexander the Great to his generals. So Alexander Great conquers all of the known world. He comes back to Greece, and he establishes some provinces for some of his higher-ups. And he gives Asia as a place for them to be landowners. Well, they would have it for a couple hundred years before the Romans would take it over. And they would create a level of some sort of aristocracy where Roman senators and wealthy people within the Roman Empire would have plots of land in the area of Asia. The capital of the province of Asia would be the capital name is Ephesus, of course, where we get the book of Ephesians from. Also, the church at Colossae, and the town of Colossae was in Asia as well. John would write in the book of Revelation seven letters to seven churches, and each of those churches are found in the province of Asia. How about Bithynia? Bithynia there uh, on the coastal side of the Black Sea. Uh, Nicomedes II would give this land to Rome. Now, why would a king give his land to the Roman Empire? As a young man, Nicomedes II would fall in love with Roman life. And he would see the great wealth that Rome had and the great peace that Rome had. And he came back, and what he did is offered his crown, his throne, and all of his land to the Roman Empire. He says in a favorite quote, I would rather be a servant of Rome's than a king of myself. And he gives all of his land and all of his subjects to uh, Rome. Paul and Silas would try to enter Bithynia on two uh, different occasions, only to be hindered by the Holy Spirit. And yet, while they were hindered 
uh, to bring the gospel. We know the gospel would get there, and we would see so a couple hundred years after Christ where two major church councils would meet in the province of Bithynia and come up with two of some of the greatest creeds in all of Christendom. The Creed of Nicaea, of course, was taken place in the Council of Nicaea, in the town of Nicaea in Bithynia, and then the Council and Creed of Chalcedon, one that would establish what the Word of God says with regards to the Trinity. Now you say, Tim, why would you spend all this time? I don't remember all of it, and the first service said, is there going to be a quiz later that I have to be ready for? The reason why I bring this up is because many times... We read the opening parts of the verses, and we just move on as if these places have no place on the globe. And the reason why I want to bring this up is that these are real places with real history. This, I'm not making this stuff up. This is secular history. These were real places with real history, and more importantly, with real people living for their God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I don't want us to get this idea that we're just reading some fairy tale of some made-up places. They're not. These are real people who struggle to live like Christ in a world of sin. Sounds like we should be listening to them, don't we? doesn't it? Now next we see not only geographically but sociologically we see that. Let's look socially how they were living. Peter addresses them as exiles. Now, exiles, the NIV translation uses the word strangers. I don't like either of those translations. And the reason why is while they have some merit to them, a better translation would be resident alien or an archaic word, sojourners. The Greek word there is parapodemos. These were the elect parapodemos of the dispersion. Well, what, is, what does that mean? While the word exile seems reasonable as a translation, it gives the idea that these people were forced by an invading army to go and live somewhere they didn't want to live. And that's nowhere in the text. It's nowhere in history. These people had come. It may have been as a result of persecution, but nothing forced them there to have to reside there. The second thing is the word stranger. And while stranger gives some levels of what is trying to uh, be laid out as the connotation for who they are and what they're trying to do. Stranger gives the implication that these people didn't know who their neighbors were and that their neighbors didn't know who they were. And that is so foreign from what the scriptures, especially what First Peter is going to tell us. He says you can't be strangers in your community. You can't be hermits. You need to live amongst them and you need to make your presence known to them as followers of Christ. And so who are these people? They are aliens residing in a new land. Not living as hermits, but as people who make their life and times amongst a people very different than themselves. They would live amongst these people. Their children would play amongst the people of the land. They would work among them. They would do commerce among them. They would have community with them. All the while as Christians living such good lives amongst these natives that those natives would see God and Christ clearly in their life. These people, the people that Peter is writing to, are people who are living in a new land, a foreign land, a land where they are outsiders, while all the while looking forward to the day that they would be able to go home. Now many of you know that my father is an immigrant, that he was not born here in America. My dad was born uh, in Baghdad, Iraq. 
And many of you know that, but many of you don't know the story behind that. The story starts at the turn of the century because you don't make a decision just to come to America. I hope you know that. My, my grandparents would say, okay, Bill, 16 years old, we don't like what's going on here, so you know what, instead of being grounded in your house, we're grounding you to America. Okay, that's not what happens. What happened was, is my dad's immigration here started at the turn of the century. My two great-grandparents, both of them were uh, merchants, and they came to Chicago, Illinois, to be a part of the World's Fair at the beginning of the last century. And they were enthralled by what they saw. They were amazed by what they saw. The luxury, the freedom, the life, the opportunity to allow your dreams to be realized. They were blown away by what they saw. They were only here for about a month. They've never met each other before, but because of that interaction, that they were two aliens in a foreign land, that they spoke the same language, a kindred spirit was brought about. That kindred spirit would grow and they would see it fit because one had a son and one had a daughter that my grandparents would be joined in marriage together. I know some of your parents would still like to do it that way. And so my grandparents, John and Nancy, were brought together. And what they were told of over and over again, what my dad would remind uh, us of is he would say, my Nana Marta, his grandmother, my great-grandmother, who wanted to see her family at peace in America. Every time they gathered together, they would be enjoying life, and there would be a birthday party or, or some sort of celebration of a holiday. There would inevitably someone say, this is the life. Life is great. Life is good. And Nana Marta would say, at the top of her lungs, she would stand up and say, don't think this is your home. America is where we're going. This place is only going to bring us hurts. It's only going to bring us pain. And America is a place of freedom where we can worship, where we can celebrate as a family the things that we cannot do here. And so stop thinking that this is home and look forward to the home you're going to have in the future. Nana Marta was a prophet in her own right because 60 years from the point that Nana Marta was in Chicago, her children one by one would come to America. Her grandchildren would come to America. They would work hard so that the parents, my, my grandparents, would be able to come after that and make their home in America. Now you say, Tim, what does all that have to do with? What Peter is announcing to the readers and to us today is that this world is not our home. And we've got to get that into our heads. We as Americans have forgotten what my family forgot, that while life may be good and while life may be tolerable here, this is not it. And we have forgotten that, and so we live like our neighbors. We're trying to keep up with the Joneses, and if the Joneses get a new car, we get a new car. If they get a bigger house, we get a bigger house. And we keep growing this place, and God is reminding us through First Peter, this is not it. And so stop living like you're putting down roots. Because this place is going to burn. And there's a home waiting for you in heaven. That's your inheritance. And so stop trying to build something that's not going to be here and start living for me and being the resident aliens that I've called you to be. And we need to be reminded of that. And we'll be reminded of that over and over again. And so First Peter is a traveler's guide to living an upright and holy life in a spiritually and one day, I believe, 
even a physically hostile world towards Christians. How are we to live? How are we to live for Christ when everybody tells us we're wrong? First Peter has the word for us. Now notice one final thing, and that is that we look at these people theologically. While these people were strangers in a strange land, as outsiders to the world around them, Peter gives them assurance and encouragement. What he's saying is you're not here by chance. If you find yourself in Asia, you're not in Asia by chance. You're not in Cappadocia by chance. You may feel like you had to leave your homeland, but God knows where you're at. And notice what he says. He says, you are here not because of a punishment, not because of mere circumstances or happenstance, but the reason why you are here is because you are a part of the elect, the chosen of God to be there. Now this word elect is a word that would be used throughout the New Testament over 20 times. And it was a word that would no doubt bring great encouragement to the readers of Peter's letter. What God is saying when he says, you are the elect exiles, you are the chosen strangers, is God is saying to the people of 1 Peter and to us today, I know you're in a foreign land. I know that life isn't easy. I know that you are enduring hardships as followers, in a, as, as my followers in a hostile land. But never forget, you are my people. You are my chosen ones. I think this must have just enthralled and excited the Gentiles in the midst. That they who have been over and over again told that the people of God were the Jewish people, that now they would be able to be a part of this kingdom of God, this family of God, that no longer was a chosen people of God simply the people of Jerusalem. But now both Jews and Gentiles would be a part of this family. Peter would come to recognize this in his interaction in Acts 10 to a man named Cornelius who was a Gentile but was filled with the Spirit and who was brought into the ingrafting of the family of God. And so therefore, what Peter is announcing to us is both male and female, Greek, uh, free and slave, Jew and Gentile are all a part of the chosen people of God. And that's why he says, just to, you know, look uh, to 1 Peter 2, uh, 9. He says, but you, you people that are all scattered about, you people that come from all different lands, you people that have all different backgrounds, you people that have all kinds of concerns and cares, you are a chosen race, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, you're a people for his own possession. But what is that to lead us to? Every time we hear about people being a part of the elect, our job is over and over again found in verse 9. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. Notice what he says. Once you were not a people, you were on your own. But now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy mercy. We must always remember that without the mercy of God, we would be alone. Without the love of God, we would still be in our transgressions and sin because we lived in darkness. But God shed his light upon us that we might be called the people of God. Now this would bring hope. This would bring great hope. Write that down in your outlines. Because Peter recognizes that these people are being assaulted by persecution. While most scholars believe that the state-sponsored uh, persecution was limited to the area around Rome, 
Peter also recognized that this persecution was still alive and well in the lives of his readers. But how would it flesh itself out? It would flesh itself out very much how it fleshes itself out today. The readers of the first century letter were reading this and struggling just as we do. They had the form of social ostracism. That means when they walked in the door, people didn't like them. Well, why didn't they like them? Because they were Bible bangers. They were holy rollers. They were no different than when you walk into a group of your peers where people are turned off because you are counted as a Christian. Maybe it was neighborly hostility where their neighbors just didn't like them. They didn't like that they stood for Christ. They didn't like that they didn't worship the other gods. And there was hostility. Maybe there was pressure in the form of of the authorities. We see that today. The authorities come and they pressure our students that they can or or can't do things. That we uh, can have a faith, but it can't be a public faith. That we can pray, but we can't pray in public. That uh, our, our words of scripture can't be there. We're coming into the holidays where Christmas can't be uttered. This is the type of stuff that was going on. We see it happens in the workplace in 1 Peter and even discord amongst families as a woman loved the Lord with all her heart and yet her husband wanted nothing to do with Jesus. While the persecution seemed somewhat tolerable, they they weren't losing their lives, and neither are we. They were seeing their lives become more and more uncomfortable. Are we seeing that today? I mean, we don't talk with great affection of what the Christian life is going to be like 20 years from now. Barring some sort of revival in this land, I can assure you from where the tea leaves seem to be showing that the Christian life will be a hot, lot more difficult 20 years from now than it, will, than it will have been today. As a preacher, I have to come to the realization that it may bring me great peril one day to do what I'm doing today in freedom. These people were struggling just as we do. They weren't facing intense persecution yet, but they knew what it was like as we do to be slighted, snubbed, ridiculed, and pressured for our faith. And so what does Peter do? He begins this letter by saying, stand firm in the faith. How does he do that? He says, let me show you how firm God stands for your faith. Notice the text. There's a couple things that we're going to see within this. First of all, I want you to write down on the side of point number two a couple observations that are crucial to what we are going to see. First of all, I want you to notice the naming of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The next time you come uh, to your door and there's a visitor at your door who has knocked at your door and says they want to teach you about God and that your view of the Trinity is wrong, take them to 1 Peter and have them try to explain that away. How can God be God the Father? How can he be God the Son? And how can he be God the Spirit? So we see Trinity. Our God is one, but he is one in Trinity of the three persons of that Trinity. The second thing I want you to see is the unity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together for the redemption of you and I. The Father isn't saying, you know what, I don't like what you two others are doing, so I'm going to do my own thing. The Son doesn't say, hey, why did I have to be the one that dies on the cross? I'm not going to do that. He doesn't say that because they're in unity, and they work together in unity for our redemption so that we may be brought close and into community with God. 
But amidst this unity, there's great diversity. What the Father does, the Son doesn't do. And what the Son does, the Spirit doesn't do. And yet they're doing distinct roles. They have distinct purposes uh, that they are to live out in their lives. And they are doing it in great diversity. Now let me tell you something. Here's a model for church ministry. We have one purpose. And that is to glorify in the triune name of our God. We are to do that in unity. Not half of you saying, well, we're going to do this today, and half of you say, no, we're going to do that. But together we say, in one voice, we are going to glorify and honor God, and we're going to reach the lost for Jesus Christ's sake. And yet, some do it preaching. Others do it singing. Still others do it teaching. Others do it behind the scenes and in the kitchen and handing out bulletins and holding babies. Some do it leading small groups. Some go to far-flung places of the world to do it. And here's the thing. Nowhere in the Trinity do we see the Son saying, well, I'm the more important one because I'm the one who died. And the Spirit doesn't say, well, I'm more important because I'm the one who sanctifies. And the Father doesn't say, oh, I got the ball rolling. I'm the one who is better than all of you. And just like that within the church, all of us should see our role, while diverse, unified under the call of Christ. And so notice, he says, all of these things are coming together. God is working in unison together. And he wants to bring us hope, no matter the circumstances. And how does he do that? Notice, he speaks of our salvation. The first thing that we see is that God the Father chooses us. We're chosen by God. Now we've seen that these were chosen or elect exiles, or resident aliens. But Peter goes on to add a phrase that brings some consternation to people. And that is the phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God. Now I want you to stick with me, because I know this was a question that came up in many of our small groups. Because right away, the thought is, the word foreknowledge, and just to help you out, is the Greek word prognosko. It's where we get the word prognosis from. It gives the general idea of knowing something beforehand. Now some would take that to believe that what God is doing is that God chose me for salvation, but he did so by looking down the long corridor of time, and so he fast-forwards, he's in eternity past, and he fast-forwards to 1983, and he sees that Tim Bidall, as a young man, is going to bow the knee at the side of his father and mother's bed and confess he's a sinner, sinner in need of salvation. And so God fast-forwards the video, and he says, Ah, I see Tim is going to choose me, so I choose Tim. Brothers and sisters, that is not foreknowledge, that's foresight. And there's a difference. Now you say, Tim, how can that be? I don't like what that sounds like because it seems to take me a little bit out of the equation. So how do we understand this word according to the foreknowledge of God? Well, we got to look at how Peter uses it. So this isn't the first time Peter would use this word, nor would it be the last. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. In Acts 2.23, of course, we have uh, the sermon on the day of Pentecost taking place. And the same word that we see in verse 2 is used here. I'm going to start in verse 22 to give us some context. And this is what the scripture says. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Prognosco, that's the word there. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now turn back in your Bibles to 1 Peter and turn to 1 Peter 1.20. We see the word prognosco once again. Verse 20 of 1 Peter. I'll start in verse 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Verse 20 starts, he, who's he speaking of? Christ, this lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus Christ was foreknown, prognosco, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope can be in God. So let's think about this for a moment. Not only are we elected, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, but so was Jesus Christ. Now, if we take the idea that God just looks through the corridors of time, then you have to take this premise. Here's what, Christ, what, what Peter was not saying. Peter is not saying in the book of, of Acts that Christ, that God looked down through the corridors of time and saw that Christ was going to get beat up by a bunch of lawless men. And he was going to get put on a cross. And God did not say, hey... Because that's going to happen, why don't we use this as the way that we'll redeem people? That's not what happened. Before the foundations of the world, the Son of God said to the Father, I will go and redeem a people unto myself. I will become one of them, I will live a life of perfection, and I will die on a sinner's cross so that I may redeem those people back to myself. It was not by chance it was not by accident, and it was not outside of the knowledge of God, but God foreordained, and he positioned Christ in that way to live that according to his purpose and his will, and our salvation is the exact same. Warren Wearsby says the following, and I love what he says here. Foreknowledge does not suggest that God merely knew ahead of time that we would believe, and therefore he chose us. This would raise the question, who or what made us decide for Christ? If God is not actively involved in it, then what moves us and motivates us to believe in the name of Jesus Christ? And as a result of that, it would take our salvation completely out of God's hands and it would put it into ours. Brothers and sisters, this is hard teaching, but Scripture is clear that redemption, our redemption, was planned before time ever began and is being worked out according to God's sovereign will and purpose. Let's think about what the Scripture says. It was God who first loved us. It was God who demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. It was God who was rich in mercy, who made us alive in Christ because we were dead in our trespasses and sin. It is not us who moves towards God. It is God who moves towards us. And that should warm the heart of every believer here because then it is not based on us or human thoughts or desires, but it is based based on the power of Almighty God. Why does he share this? 
because he wants his readers to know that they always have and they always will be loved by God. Number two, we see the Spirit changes them. It says, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, many of you may think, okay, I'm willing to concede, Tim. Election comes first, and we can, we can talk about how all that happens. But, but, but election, yes, we know that. Before the foundations of the earth, we were predestined in Christ. But then justification must happen second. And then the Holy Spirit does his work. But brothers and sisters, we must remember we are dead. We have no way of trusting Christ without a moving of the Spirit. And so John chapter 3 reminds us of a a conversation that happens between Jesus Christ and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is reminded that to be born again, the Spirit must be at work in the life of the sinner. We're reminded in John chapter 16, Jesus says these words that the Holy Spirit would come to convict sinners of their sin. We can't come to know Christ without a moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives because we would never recognize we're in sin. It was the Holy Spirit that was at work. And the Holy Spirit not only convicts us of sin, he doesn't just give us a guilty conscience, but he leads us to all righteousness. And so the Father elects the believer. The Spirit illuminates the hearts and minds for us to understand God's truth giving us new life in Christ that we may seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. Now notice what the text says. The Spirit's going to illuminate our hearts and it will lead to a singular fruit. And the fruit is for obedience to Jesus Christ. How do you know that you're elect? How do you know you're being sanctified by the Spirit? Are you obeying Jesus? Peter says the way you know you're obeying Jesus, have you bowed the knee to Jesus? Unbelievers uh, or depraved individuals do not bow their knee in submission to Christ and say, I give this all to you. And so you can know if you have confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that is the work of the Spirit moving in your life. But it's not simply obedience in a one-time fashion. But this sanctification leads to ongoing obedience. And so we obey and we say, I submit, I give you my life, Christ, and we continue to obey day in and day out, obeying him. It is the Holy Spirit that would remind the readers of 1 Peter that they don't have to worry about falling away because the Spirit will protect them from that type of failure. You'd say this should be encouragement to the listener. No matter their trials or their tribulations, hear me out. The unseen and unheard activity of the Holy Spirit would act and surround them like a spiritual uh, atmosphere. Very similar to the atmosphere that's around our planet, the Holy Spirit acts as that atmosphere that enables us to live and breathe in the Christian life, turning every circumstance, every sorrow, every hardship into a tool of patient and perfect work of sanctifying us, making us more like Christ. And so no matter what happens to us, because the Holy Spirit is at work in us, the Spirit will change our circumstances that though we have a fiery trial before us, God says the Spirit's going to take that trial and he's going to make your faith greater than it was the day before. And so who cares what man brings towards us? Who cares what trials come along our way? We've got the Spirit of God working in us. Now notice finally, and by the way, just so you just, the third point's really short, okay? So stick with me. He goes on and he says, you're cleansed by the Son. 
Notice, he says, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Peter would know his readers who have been elected by God, who are being changed by the Spirit, would realize that their obedience, while a goal, all of you are here, I'm going to believe that the vast majority of you here want to honor God with your life. Amen? You're here, you want to hear teaching, you want to honor God. I want to submit to you, God, and your lordship. I want to follow your ways. But we all know that we're going to fail in that, right? There's a word for us this morning. Peter has a great word for us. He knows that even the most mature believer in Christ, who desires to walk with Christ, is going to fail. You think Peter understood this? You betcha. If anybody loved Jesus, it was Peter. If it was anybody who wanted to follow Jesus, it was Peter. And every time he would walk with Jesus, what would happen? He would fall. And Peter says, if you're anything like me, then you're going to love and want to be with Jesus and do what Jesus says. People of Village Bible Church, you're going to want to walk out of this place with a great desire to follow Christ throughout this week. But Peter says, if you're like me, you're going to fall sometime this week. You're going to fail Jesus. You're going to deny Jesus. And hear what Peter adds. He says, don't forget they're sprinkling with his blood. This phrase signifies three reminders or three occasions in the Old Testament. The first, the sprinkling of blood. Uh, after a sacrifice was done, the priest would come out to the assembly of people and sprinkle the assembly with blood. And he said, that's weird, okay? That's, that's not what we do here. But that's what they were called to do. And it was a reminder for the people of God to recognize that blood was shed and an animal was sacrificed on behalf of them to God. And that a reminder that sacrifice had taken place. The second way that this cleansing, or I'm sorry, this uh, sprinkling would take place was the sprinkling uh, onto a priest. During the ordination of a priest, he would be set apart for ministry. The priests that were already ordained to the ministry would take a sprinkling of the blood and they would put it onto the priest, signifying that your ministry now is a ministry of sacrifice, that your ministry is now is the go-between, as that lamb was, to go between the people and their sin and a holy God. Now, each of these are important things, but I don't think this is what Peter is talking about. Because this sprinkling wasn't a one-time thing, but it's an ongoing sprinkling. It is found in an active tense that is happening over and over and over again. And so what is going on here? The third uh, occurrence where this sprinkling would take place is that a man or a woman who had contracted leprosy, which was a contagious disease, once made clean. Remember, a leper would come into the community of people and yell, unclean unclean, don't touch me because I'll defile you. And so what would happen is, is that person that had been made clean would show himself to a priest and the priest would sprinkle blood upon them signifying that they were no longer unclean but now they were clean. They were made clean and now they could have a relationship with the community and relationship with their God. Brothers and sisters, what I believe is happening here and stick with me is that Peter is saying as sojourners, as resident aliens, Peter and God fully are aware of our circumstances in life that in this world, we're gonna be rubbing shoulders with sinners. And when you rub shoulders with sinners, you're gonna become defiled because they're gonna introduce stuff to you. I know this. 
you know this, we're raising our kids. I'm amazed at the stuff that comes home from my son. The defilement that comes that we've got to work through. Why? Because we're, we're Christians in a sinful world. And we're going to go into this world and this world's going to expose us to all kinds of sin and all kinds of issues. You're going to leave this wonderful place called the church and you're going to go out into the world and the world's going to advertise sin before you. The world is going to bring sin before you. The ways of this world are going to be attractive to you. And you know what's going to happen? Just like me, we're all going to fall. Hopefully we won't fall too far, but we're going to fall. And what Peter is saying is, as aliens, the one thing you don't have to worry about is, Jesus is going to cleanse you. And every time you fall to sin, Jesus is going to come, and he's going to sprinkle your life, and he's going to say, you're no longer defiled, you're clean. You no longer have to stand and be ostracized by people because you have fellowship with God and you have fellowship with your fellow believers in Christ. So we see God is wholly active wholly active in our salvation. Now please, let me share this. That does not limit the great responsibility we have as human beings. We are called to trust and obey. We're called to call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. But what Peter has done is he has set the table in telling us that God loves us, that God is firm in his salvation for us, and that we, being aware of every present circumstance, that God will never leave us nor forsake us. That what God did in the beginning, as Paul said, he will be faithful to see it to to the day of completion. He's faithful. And so no matter our circumstances, no matter how faithless we are, God is faithful. Now he gives us one more thing. And I don't want to belabor this because I don't think it was to be belabored in the text. And that is he gives us help. He gives us help. And just write these two things down. He gives us undeserved favor. We don't deserve it, but he's given it to us as exiles. And he gives us an unshakable foundation. What do I mean by that? Everyone look up here for a moment. I want to talk to you. You're going to leave this place and on Monday morning as a Christian, you're going to go into a workplace that, that doesn't like Christianity. They're going to roll their eyes at you. They're going to call you all kinds of names. And you know what Peter is saying? In that moment, grace and peace are being multiplied to you. I wish the young people were here to hear this, but there are still some in our midst. You're going to go to a school, and you're going to be involved with friends where you're one in a hundred or, or one in a thousand when it comes to Christians to unbeliever ratio. And you're going to walk through those hallways, and you're going to feel like an outsider, and you're going to feel like the whole world is against you. And you know what you're going to need on Monday morning? Grace and peace being multiplied to you. Maybe some of you are living in a mixed marriage right now where you're a believer and your spouse isn't. You know what you're going to need every moment of the day? Grace and peace being multiplied to you. You're going to come around the Thanksgiving table and people are going to sneer at you and you're going to say, you know, can we just take a moment and thank God for all the blessings? Oh, what are we doing? Why are we wasting our time? Let's go watch some football. Let's not hang with these Bible bangers. You know what you're going to need in that moment in your family is grace and mercy being multiplied to you. And what Jesus is doing, what our God in heaven is doing each and every day is giving us the grace that we need for the journey. And so whatever your trial is, whatever your circumstances are, God is meeting you every step of the way. He's cleansing you. The Spirit's changing you. And he's giving you exactly what you need to be the upright and holy Christian in a hostile world. What words of encouragement my prayer is that you'll be blessed. I'm blessed by it. And I look forward to what God's going to teach us. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. 
And Lord, I thank you for these opening words. A whole lot more than, hi, how are you? Lord, you have taught us great truths this morning. Lord, let us wrestle with these truths. Let us work through these things. Lord, I pray that this would give us hope. We are going to learn next week that we were born into a living hope, Father. What a hope that it is. Father, I pray that it would change not our circumstances, but how we view those circumstances so that as we suffer, as we're ridiculed, as we're called out for our faith, that we would shine like stars. Oh, Lord, let us live amongst these uh, insiders as outsiders, Lord. Let us live the outside life pure and blameless so that they may glorify God when they see how we live. Now, Lord, lead us into this world of hostility. Lead us to this world that is not our home. And, Lord, keep us from that which would defile and bring blemish to your name and to our lives. Give us the Holy Spirit's power to do so. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.